From the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And um, they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken, from the, taken with, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The word of the Lord. From the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5, starting with verse 1, going to verse 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. 
Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We're beginning a series this morning that we're calling The Sacred Journey, and it's going to be a series over the course of the next few weeks. And the stories and the letters that we'll look at over the next few weeks will speak to us about this road or this journey that we're on as Christians. What does it mean to be on this journey as Christians? And um, we're going to be led through various stages of the Christian journey. So we're going to look at like different stages of what it means to be Christian. And that's kind of tricky because you can't easily divide up like stages of the Christian life. Like it's not like there's stage one and then you graduate and then you go to another stage and then you graduate and you go to another one. That's not really how the Christian life works. We kind of jump back and forth, kind of like a pinball machine. We go back and forth all over the place in this Christian journey. And yet there is some sort of maturity that happens. There's a growth that happens in this process. And so maybe instead of stages, we can talk about different movements within the Christian journey that we experience. Um, For example, today we're going to look at what happens when we encounter God and we experience God. Um, All of us have a moment in our lives of some sort, even if it's when we were really young and it was kind of gradual. All of us have some sense of encountering God for the first time. Um, That may have happened, that happens for the first time, but I also think that we constantly encounter God on a regular basis. So this thing that happened to us maybe once kind of happens over and over again in a different sense. Um, Our Isaiah text is this beautiful, majestic, amazing vision that the prophet Isaiah has. It's this beautiful story. In fact, there are songs, lots of songs sung about this text. I remember a song that um, I knew as a kid, and one of the, when I tried to learn guitar for a couple weeks, um, I, one of the first songs that I learned was this worship song that was, I see the Lord seated on the throne, exalted. It goes on, the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. It's taken from this text. The reason why I learned it is it's three chords, so it's like really easy to play. But in this text, we see angels and seraphs specifically who are giant, magnificent, majestic angels. So they're not cherubs. They're not the little, you know, baby angels. (laughs) They're the big ones with giant wings. Okay, that's the seraphs. And it's this majestic moment in the heavenly places. And Isaiah, the prophet, is invited into this vision, this picture. He's brought into God's presence And it's a reminder here in the Old Testament that God desires for his people to be with him, that our God desires people to be close. So this would be kind of scandalous in the ancient world that the prophet is actually brought into the heavenly throne room, okay? He's present with God and the worship of the angels. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in your life where you've been overcome by the presence of God where you felt that sense of just overwhelming God's presence. Um, It happens differently for each of us, uh, depending on our personality. Um, In my church upbringing, we had these kind of moments almost every Sunday, okay? It was an energy in the room. In fact, there was a, a book written about my church recently, and I read it, and it was talking about the experience of being there on a Sunday. It's this giant church and just the buzz and the energy and how you wanted to have a good seat close, and you just really wanted that um, resonating sense of God's presence. 
Um, and so we felt that, and I think there is something good about that. I think there's something beautiful. We believed that we were entering the throne room of God every Sunday. No matter, there was that expectation that we brought with us. Now, in my upbringing, of course, there were some times where those feelings were manufactured, where we tried to make those things happen out of even manipulation. And so leaders would do that. So that's the negative side of, of my experience. That's where we got it wrong. But maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's in a church service that you experienced. Maybe you look back on your life and you were like, I was at a youth camp, a revival, and I just sensed God's presence. I knew that and I felt it. The emotions hit you. You felt close to God. But if your personality is different than that, maybe you experience God in a different way. And in nature. Maybe you've been out in nature and you've just been overwhelmed by the presence of God. Or in art or in music, where you almost feel like, not the same, but you have this kind of throne room experience like Isaiah had. Some of you are more academic and you go, yeah, I don't really do that, that kind of thing. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I believe that many who find that, quote, nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion, would find that their heart sings unbidden while they're working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand, okay? Some of us are a little different in that way. And we're thankful for these moments, these, these moments that feel transcendent, that feel close to God. We celebrate those moments. Don't ever let anybody tell you there's something wrong with those moments, even in a church like ours, where sometimes we can tend to be cerebral and we're very reflective, like, like don't let anybody tell you there's something wrong with these moments where your heart sings and leaps for joy. Those are amazing, beautiful. And we can imagine that Isaiah felt honored to receive this vision in this moment. It's a beautiful thing. And think about what happens to Isaiah in this moment. So the first thing that happens is he's called into the worship of heaven. He's called, called into the worship of heaven. But secondly, he feels the need immediately to confess his sin. So he's in the presence of God, and the first thing he feels like he needs to do is confess his sin, okay? There's a sense of unworthiness in Isaiah. Like, I'm not really quite worthy to be here. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is what happens when we're in God's presence. We're incomplete in and of our own, um, we realize that we're incomplete. We're broken. We are unclean. It's like the lights are turned on and we're exposed for who we are. And I think there is something important about this moment. I unfortunately read a, an article about a book from a Christian leader who I really respect, but she wrote this recent book basically talking about Christians really shouldn't feel bad about really anything that they do that it was trying to, I think in a good way, trying to get away from shame, which we talk about getting away from that a lot, and guilt and this idea that we're bad and we're you know, awful people. But it, it almost took it to an extent where it's like we shouldn't ever feel like conviction that what we're doing is wrong. And I don't think that's helpful. I think there is something in God's presence and in God's story that says to us, yeah, there's a thing that I've done or a thing about what's in my heart right now that is broken that's not right. It's not God's intention. That's appropriate. But notice this, and this is what's important. It's not that our humanity is wrong. It's not that Isaiah's humanity is wrong, that being human is bad. He's not unclean because he's human. Because when we sin, when we go against God's best for us, it's not that we're only human and so we mess up. 
it's we're actually becoming less human. <laughs> we're actually moving away from who we were created to be. Our sin makes us less human. But immediately we see he confesses his sin and then Isaiah's changed. So in this image, it's beautiful. His lips are cleansed. There's like tongs that get a flaming coal and they go and they cleanse his lips with this coal. He's changed by God. He's transformed. So he confesses his sin and then instantly he's changed by God. And then the Lord says this. The Lord says, whom shall I send? It's, I love this passage because God is asking for volunteers, all right? So we're in a throne room here and it's this amazing, beautiful thing. And Isaiah has had this unclean lips thing happen and the coal has reached his lips. And Isaiah's kind of standing there by himself and all the angels are around him. God says, now who should I send into the world, right? And Isaiah, I, I like to think he hesitates for a minute and he kind of looks at his shoes and he goes, here I am, send me, Okay. Isaiah is called into worship. Isaiah confesses sin. Isaiah is forgiven and changed by God. And then Isaiah is sent, confesses sin, is changed by God, right? Um, or he's called into worship, he confesses his sin, he's changed by God, and he's sent. Do you notice a pattern that's familiar to you here? Called to worship, confess sin, changed by the word of God and sent. That's what we do every Sunday morning when we gather together. We're called to worship. We confess our sin. The word of God changes us and transforms us and we're transformed at the table and then we're sent into the world. That's what we do. Every Sunday, we believe we are in the presence of God. No matter what's happening on a Sunday, we are called into the throne room and there ought to be an expectation that comes with that. By God's grace, we are invited into the worship of heaven. And in the worship of heaven, our sin is revealed and we're healed and we're sent. Now, if you keep reading this passage, it's a bit anticlimactic, the part that we didn't read today. Uh, the message is not a hopeful one that Isaiah is sent with. It is a message of destruction and exile for the people of God, <laughs> okay? Everything is gonna be torn down, Isaiah is to say to Israel, it's in the tearing down, though, that new shoots will eventually spring up, okay? So there will be a hard message, and the scripture says the people won't respond to it. In other words, Isaiah is sent with a message of destruction. It's a hard word, and most likely people won't receive it. That's what God says. When we're sent into the world, we don't always see the fruit of those things, Okay? When we're sent into the world, we don't often see the beautiful, great results that God brings through that, through our faithfulness. Um, you can live in your calling faithfully every single day and people may not respond, okay? I remember being in a church planning training uh, before Ashley and I moved here and it was a church planning organization we didn't go with. Um, but we, and there was a lot of reasons for that, but we went through their training and this is a church planning philosophy that was like, really what you have to do is you just have to have a really big first Sunday morning service that just blows the roof off the place and you have to spend lots and lots of money. Their budget for this first service is $100,000. They said, you gotta do that, spend this. You gotta make your marketing huge and do all these things. And then you hope you get enough people there on that first Sunday that they'll stick around and then they'll 
like continue to sustain the church from there on out. There's a reason we didn't go with that organization. But one of the things that stuck with me that they said is they did this big thing on the first service and they did this whole thing and then we broke for lunch. And then the first thing when we came back, the name of the session was, if you build it, they may not come. That was the name of the first session. Of the, session. the session was about marketing. But the phrase stuck with me because it's... It, in my heart, there's something about sometimes we're faithful in what God calls us to do, and yet we don't always see the results of that, okay? You are not responsible for the fruit in other people's lives. You are responsible for being faithful in joining God in his work. That's all you're responsible for, okay? That's it. It's to join God in his work. You can't produce outcomes. Well, you're not responsible for the outcome, you're responsible for the faithfulness, okay? Isaiah was sent with a hard word and God said, people aren't gonna respond to you. Here's the word, go, <laughs> right? And yet he did, he was faithful. In our New Testament, in our gospel story today, um, this story is so similar in so many ways. It's startling and surprising. Uh, we tend to think of the disciples as being called at the very beginning of the story, but in Luke's gospel, the calling of the disciples is after Jesus is well into his ministry, okay? So he's done things in the synagogue. He's cast out an impure spirit. Here he is teaching. He's done all these things and he doesn't have the disciples, the 12 with him yet. And here he teaches people from a boat, okay? In Christ, so, so we see here in Jesus, God is present with people in the boat, in their lives, so this is not like Isaiah in that God is in a heavenly throne room. This is God on a beach and in a boat. Different. There's a contrast kind of here. Um, it's in a fishing boat. Think about the contrast of our two stories. In the first one, Isaiah encounters God in a throne room full of angels. Here, the disciples encounter God in a fishing village. God's presence is fully in both places. This is the God who so wants to be near to his people, to heal us, to invite us into a new kind of life, that he steps into our villages. He steps into our everyday. He steps into our neighborhoods. This is the God who's not afraid to smell fish, to use simple boats. He's not content with just being in his heavenly throne room. He's close to us. He's near to us. I think about next week, we have this tangible opportunity um, before service, a bunch of us in groups are gonna go and just simply serve coffee and hand warmers to our uh, homeless neighbors, okay? We're gonna just walk together in big groups, but we're gonna walk and serve coffee. It's just one of these tangible ways to go, we believe that we're supposed to be an extension of God in this neighborhood. So what would God be doing in this neighborhood? <laughs> well, maybe simple acts of being present and serving people. We have this opportunity. God is with us in the everyday. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. There's kind of a, there's all kinds of symbolism here, whether Luke intended it or not. Um, so much of Jesus's ministry happens around seas and water. We've talked about this before. He calms the sea. He walks on the water. 
He overall, everything kind of shows that he is the Lord over the sea. And remember, I've told you before that in the ancient world, the sea was the chaotic, dark, evil thing, like the source of evil. In fact, if you even read like Greek mythology and things like that, this is a consistent theme that the seas is where the monsters come from, where evil comes from. But Jesus shows himself as Lord of the seas here. Jesus is the one who was there at creation. Creation is the creation that happens out of the deep. The spirit of God hovers over the waters. So Jesus is saying to Peter here, go into the deep waters. Go to where it's often deemed unsafe. Go to the depths. And I may be stretching that metaphor a little bit. That's possible. But maybe Jesus is just saying, hey, there's more fish out there. Go a little bit deeper. But But Simon answers him, "Um, well, Jesus, master, we've been here all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And I hear Simon's voice here. Like I hear this sense of, okay, I'm a professional fisherman and I've done this my entire life. This is what my family has done. Not only is it something I have experience in, it's kind of part of my DNA for generations and generations and generations. So you telling me to one more time put my net out in the water is not really helpful right now, Jesus. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience before with somebody. I, I've had experiences where you have a friend who's like really good at something. Like this is like their world. It's what they've given their life to. And somebody comes up and gives them a suggestion about their job. <laughs> have you ever had that before? And I just want to roll my eyes like way back in my head. And I feel like that might be some of what some people are thinking here. Um, Simon has tried to fish all night and hear the carpenter's son <laughs> tells him, just go out in deeper water. That'll help. But Simon obeys. There's something in Simon that sees an authority here that's deeper, right? And so when he does, he catches so many fish, his net begins to break. God's provision and work is so strong, it breaks his tools. It breaks what he has. There's so much abundance. Our God is the God of abundance, the God who has more than we could possibly imagine, the God who provides, the God who knows what his people need. And yet we often live out of scarcity, don't we? We often live our lives in fear that we're not gonna have enough. What if I don't have enough next week? Out of this fear and this anxiety, we live in a world of scarcity. Everything in our world is based on the fear of something running out. I better get mine now or it's going to be gone. Is that true or is that just what I experience? It's true. Have any of you studied the Enneagram of personality? Okay, one of us, this isn't gonna be helpful. No, Um, but this Enneagram of personality is, uh, it's a personality assessment, it's really beautiful, but there's different um, numbers. People are kind of um, seen in different numbers. And one of the numbers is the number six, and six is security-oriented. The basic fear of the six is their fear is of being without support and guidance. So there's a fear of not having support, not having guidance, not having security. Their basic desire is to have security and support. And and I've heard it suggested in some of these studies that the six is actually the most common personality type. Some have even suggested that half of the world is a six, 
<laughs> okay? So it's like a dominant personality type. And this makes a lot of sense when you think about society, you think about the fear that's present in our society. Like you see how political candidates promote themselves. It's always based on fear, isn't it? Fear that we won't be safe enough, fear that you won't have enough, right? It's all about what fear of what might happen if, but that's not just politics. Like think about commercials for alarm systems. Like alarm systems are this thing will probably happen to you if you don't get this kind of system, right? Think about insurance. Even the fun State Farm commercials are like, yeah, all this stuff's gonna break in your life and you need to have somebody ready to be there for you. Think about all of the commercials on cable television that are targeted to older Americans with health issues, which is like all the commercials now, right? Our culture taps into our fear of what might happen. And then when something bad does happen to us, we convince ourselves it's our fault because we weren't adequately prepared, right? Our God has more than we could possibly ever need. We can trust him. We don't have to operate in fear. And when I say our God is the God of abundance, I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying that God wants you to be rich or to have a Cadillac or Mercedes or whatever. Um, I'm saying that we can trust him to take care of our needs in ways that we may never expect. That's what I'm saying. Here, God overwhelms them so much that their tools, their ability to produce wealth is broken because God has provided for them so much. The things that they have trusted on their own and depended on don't work. We're so dangerous, guys, when we trust in our own talents or gifts or skills or even in our job and we say, that's the, that's the way that I'm going to be healthy and happy and whole. No, those things are things that God has provided for us. They may be temporary. They may be long-term. I don't know. But it's God who ultimately gives us the ability to produce wealth and have provision in our lives. It's him. It's all God. That's why we have said this a million times. That's why we pray before our meals. We don't pray because we're like, God bless this so I don't get sick from it. There's not some magical like formula that we do so that all the things that would make us sick in our meals go out of the way. No, that's not what we're doing. We're saying, God, thank you because you're the one who gave us food in the first place. It's not us. Thank you that you allow the ground to grow in such a way that vegetation comes from it and the land to produce animals for those of us that do that kind of thing, right? Like, thank you for that, for blessing us in that way. Simon Peter responds instantly to God's provision, and he says this strange phrase, get away from me, Lord. When he has this provision happen to him, he says, get away from me. And the reason why he says it, is he says, I'm a sinful man. The immediate response to Jesus is that he recognizes his own unworthiness. I can't even stand near you because I'm not worthy. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the Isaiah story, doesn't it? Or as soon as Isaiah's in God's presence, he says, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like Isaiah, the first response to God's presence is to realize I'm broken and I need something outside of myself. Isaiah realizes this in a throne room. Simon realizes this on a boat. And Jesus's immediate response to Simon is by saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Simon was afraid because of his sin. Jesus immediately calms his fears. In the midst of God's presence, love conquers sin. 
Love conquers guilt and shame. You don't have to fear love. You don't have to be afraid of love. What Jesus has brought into the world is not something you have to be afraid of. It is something that heals us, redeems us. Perfect love casts out all fear, the scripture says. And then Jesus says this phrase, from now on, you will fish for people. That's really clear, isn't it? Right? What the heck is that about? Simon has been changed by this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus now has a mission for him. From now on, you're going to do this mission. So the fishing metaphor here has been really misunderstood in Christian culture. Like, we just have to say that. There are a couple different ways to look at this. First of all is the context of fishing. <laughs> and in Christian culture, we've used this in some strange ways. My mom um, tells the story often that in the Jesus movement days of the 1970s, they used to, they told them, they told the ladies in the church, think about this today, this would never fly today, and it shouldn't have flied then, but the ladies in the church, that they should date the popular guys in school in order to win them to Christ, okay? <laughs> that was the strategy here. So date the most popular guys in school so that they can come to Christ. This was seen as and called Fisher evangelism, all right? Um, reel them in was the idea. So the other thing that we've done, so we've done that, which is awful. You know, we've tried to make people think that, all right, that's, we're just gonna win them to Christ with all means necessary, whatever. The other thing we've done is we tend to think of fish as these inanimate objects, and we see fishing through a capitalist lens. So we think about, it's all about getting as many fish as you can at all costs, all right? So we translate that into evangelism, and we say we just need to reel them in at all costs, whatever it takes. So we treat people as if they're people who need to be hooked. And that's the goal. And that's what a lot of our Christianity has done is it's evangelism is just about getting people to say the sinner's prayer at all cost, getting people to come to church at all cost. It's not relational. It's, well, they're just fish. So let's reel them in. And this, this passage in this story has been used for that so many different times. But if you look at fishing in the first century, it was a delicate craft. It was taken with all seriousness and with a deep reverence for creation. They didn't see fish as just inanimate objects that should be thrown into a boat for their own pleasure. They saw it as kind of a connection and a unity with creation, unity with the world. It wasn't about just trying to see how many fish you could get in a boat. And this was these men's lives. It, it wasn't just a profession. It was their way of life. Everything that they did was about this delicate craft of unity with creation and connecting with the world. The town they lived in thrived on fishing. The Zebedee family had been fishing for generation after generation after generation. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. I'm going to change the craft that you're focused on. I'm going to change that thing that is good and beautiful about what you do, and I'm calling you to something else. I'm calling you away from the family business, from all that you've known, not just to add something to your life, but to redirect your life in a radical way. He calls them to live in a different way with a different vocation. So there's this fishing metaphor but there's also another way to understand this word catch. The word catch that's used in Luke's gospel is not actually a fishing word. The word was catch was for taking prisoners alive as opposed to killing them. So in other words, someone under threat of death 
was given a new lease on life. Their life was restored. In the restora- it is the restoration of life for those who are pursuing the ways of death. So N.T. Wright says of this passage, Peter is not simply to fish for people, but to be God's agent in restoring people to life. The actual work of evangelism is gathering people to share in God's abundance. The actual um, goal and work of evangelism is being new life and being restoration in people's lives. And people are drawn by love. Love is what sticks. Self-help strategies for evangelism don't stick, all right? If your goal, if you're sitting, I don't know why whenever evangelism stories are told, it's always on an airplane that you are supposed to evangelize somebody. But if you're sitting on an airplane next to somebody and you tell them, be a Christian because everything in your life is gonna be fixed. It's all gonna be perfect. It's all gonna be right. You're gonna have prosperity and you're gonna have hope and you're gonna be happy all the time. That's gonna last about five minutes, okay? Because they're gonna realize that life is still hard. (laughs) Might even be harder (laughs) when you're a Christian. It won't lead you to success. It will actually cause suffering. (laughs) Yes, Simon. Yes, Isaiah, you are unclean. But in addition to being unclean, you are also more deeply loved than you could ever imagine. It's not self-help, it's love. Not only do you not have to run, Simon, you're called to join in by love. As we close, um, sometimes we may encounter God in the throne room in our lives. We may have these transcendent experiences that are beautiful and we can celebrate that. But more often we're gonna meet him on a beach, in a boat, at our job, in our everyday life. Our God is the one who steps into our everyday circumstances, our real everyday lives that are full of fear and shame and pain. And in those places, he calls us into his abundant grace. He hears our confession. He forgives our sin. He changes us by communion with himself. And then he calls us into a broken world. And as he sends us, he sends us like like he came into the everyday life. He sends us into the everyday with our neighbors and with our coworkers and with our family. So with Christ, we are to call people to worship. What does that mean? When we start our services here, we um, say we're gathered, we're called into worship. We're gathered in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, what does this look like in our everyday lives? Well, it may look like an invite to church like David did. It definitely looks like reminding people of who they were created to be. They were created to love, to worship, and to desire something, God himself. You will notice people called to worship many other things in life, called to worship money or sex or power or status, success or fame. And we are the people who are there and exist to remind them of a better story in a better way. With Christ, not only do we call people to worship, we hear the cries of brokenness. And when people confess their sin, sometimes you'll hear people confess their sin, they don't even know that's what they're doing. They're just saying, hey, I really messed up in this way. And when we hear that, we're called to love them. Christians are the forgiving people that we're supposed to like carry forgiveness with us. 
be known as the people who forgive. We carry forgiveness wherever we go because we've been forgiven. So when people open up to their shame and their failure, Christians ought not be the one who turn our noses up on them. My dad's a counselor and he said that he's really gotten good at the face of not being shocked over the years. Because <laughs> in the counseling office, he hears like so many things that like would shock a lot of us. And he's just kind of learned to go, that's interesting, right? <laughs> Christians, we shouldn't be the ones that when we hear something, we go, oh, oh my gosh, we walk away from them. We should be the forgiving and loving people because that's who we are. And then with Christ, so we call people to who they're called to be. We hear the cries of brokenness and love them. And then with Christ, we're a transforming presence in their lives. And this may be through the actual speaking of God's word to them, but it also may be through an incarnational presence, sitting with someone in pain and loving them and serving them. And then finally, with Christ, we invite them into a different vocation. We're not a self-help program. That's not what the church exists for. We are the people on mission. Our faith is active and we invite other people to join into the kingdom of healing for the whole world. I, I think it's so unfortunate the church has not gotten a reputation for doing that. The church is often the people who try to go in and just tell people what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with all of them. But what if Christianity was an invitation into the healing and restoring faith, hope, and love for the world? That's kind of what it is, right? That is what it is. We don't get to join the kingdom because of our merits, because we're clean enough or good enough, but because of the unending grace of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we are thankful for this new story that we're invited into. We thank, we're thankful that you are the God who comes close to us, who draws near to us, who calls us into worship of you. We don't just have to appease you, don't do a dance to get your attention, but that you call us into your presence by your grace. Thank you that you convict us of sin in your presence, that when we're in your presence, that it reveals those places that are less human in our lives, those places where we've gone against your desire for us. And Lord, thank you that you immediately heal those, that you lead us towards healing and restoration in our lives. And then Lord, thank you that you send us as we're in communion with you, that you send us into a broken world to participate in your mission. Not because we're good enough or clean enough, but simply because you love us. So today we trust in this better story and we ask that we would be agents of forgiveness and reconciliation and life to a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.